As it has been several weeks since we have looked at this passage, let me very quickly summarize it for you. In verse 7, the church's previous leaders are held up as worthy of remembrance. These were the men who taught the word of God to them. They knew the faith, but more than that, they lived the faith and they reached the goal of faith. In verse 8, this faith is defined. It is the unchanging Christ. He was the promised one, and on him, God's people have always set their trust. So in verses 9 through 16, these believers are encouraged not to depart from this faith, but to be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ. This will enable them to endure like Christ and to praise God through Christ and to live pleasing to the Father. Finally, they are told in verse 17 to obey and submit to their present leaders who must give account to Christ. Now let's go back to verse 8 and let's spend our time there. Verse 8 is striking, even in English, but it is more so in the Greek. Verse 8, as I have read it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's an accurate translation. But in the Greek, it's more emphatic, more doxological, more confessional. It reads this way. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same. And forever. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same. And forever. The truth content is identical, but the feel is somewhat different. The name Jesus and the title Christ are placed up front for emphasis. Then the hearers are told that in their lifetimes, yesterday and today, in the times of their former leaders and their present leaders, Jesus Christ is the same. Unless they worry, the preacher quickly adds, and forever. And he is the same forever. He is unchanging. Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, the same, and forever. Now this is a verse, like the end of verse 5, which reads, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's often quoted in a standalone manner. It's often put to use in contexts completely different from this specific scripture. And that is fine. That's fine. Because these are general truths that have application not only to the situation that this particular group of church members found themselves in, but in many, many more. Verse 5, for example, is a reminder to not worry about material needs. The scriptures promise, I'm sorry, the scripture promise given to set their hearts at rest is the truth that God will never abandon them, but will always supply their need. So also verse 6, when fears threaten to overwhelm us about our material provisions, we can confidently say, ah, but the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. When any need or fear of any kind threatens us, 
these verses are true and ought to be rightly applied by us and to us. We ought to say in a multitude of situations, we have the promise of God. He will never leave us or forsake us. The Lord is my helper. I have no reason to fear. What can anyone do to me? So also, verse 8. So also, the verse that is the point of our study. It confesses an unchanging Christ. And it fits this specific context, but also the varied concerns of our lives even if of a very different nature. So I want you to see the meaning of this verse in this context, but understand that its usefulness as a comforting truth goes far beyond this one case. Now, whenever a single verse is pulled out of the Bible and quoted or applied or explained, it can be easily distorted. Words in the Bible get their meaning from the context. And without a context, it's easy to make a verse mean something other than what God intended. You've all heard of proof texting. Well, proof texting by itself really doesn't prove anything unless you know all of the background of all of those proof texts and the study that goes with them. This is why false teachers don't often preach large chunks of scripture in an expositional manner. It's easier for them to make the Bible mean what they want it to mean if they just take one verse or part of one verse. At times, that has been done with this verse, verse 8. So before I expound its, I believe, God-intended meaning... Let me tell you two things that it doesn't mean. So my outline today is very simple. Two things this verse doesn't mean, and two things that this verse does mean. All right? And let me add, these are real-life examples. These are things, these things that it doesn't teach, are things that individuals and churches have and to this day say that it means. But according to the rest of the Bible, it can't and doesn't. You see, quoting a verse isn't the same thing as interpreting it correctly. Quoting a verse is not the same thing as using the verse that you're speaking correctly. So we study the Bible, the whole Bible to learn as best we can by the help of the Holy Spirit in the context of the church what God means in individual verses. So first of all, what this verse doesn't teach. And the first of my two falsehoods is this, that Jesus was changeless as a human being. That Jesus was changeless as a human being. What I'm saying is that this verse does not teach that Jesus was always exactly the same in his human body and soul. And yet, there are people who teach that in one way or another. This has been taught by groups as diverse as the Roman Catholic Church 
and American fundamentalism. Proponents of this idea say, the text plainly says Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. So doesn't it follow that he never changed in certain ways as a human being? For example, some have taught that the human mind of Jesus had perfect and complete knowledge from the time of his conception. The human mind of Jesus. We're not talking about the person of the Son of God, the divine nature of Christ. We're talking about his human mind, his human nature. Some have taught that the human mind of Jesus had perfect and complete knowledge from the time of his conception. He didn't learn from other people. He didn't grow in understanding. He never tried something or experimented to see what would happen because he already knew. He never really asked a question, at least not sincerely, because of course he already knew the answer. That's what they teach. Others have said, well, I know he appeared to grow and change in his body, uh, but in reality he didn't. Notice these people aren't saying that the Son of God in his divine nature didn't change. They are saying that in his human nature, in one or more ways, Jesus didn't change. But this is clearly mistaken for at least two reasons. First, other parts of Scripture directly contradict not this verse, but this understanding of this verse. This is an error, and other Scriptures say no to that view. For example, in Luke 2.40, it says this of Jesus emerging from his time in infancy, and the child grew. Which means, the child grew and became strong, which means he became strong, filled with wisdom. Physical and intellectual growth was a process in Christ's humanity. Later in that same chapter, Luke 2, but at age 12, it says this about him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. This is describing a changing human nature. Not an imperfect human nature. Not a sinful human nature. A real human nature. A normal human nature. In his divinity... Jesus Christ was all-knowing. And he was a spirit. He didn't have a body like men. But in his human body and in his human soul, he was changing and growing. These verses don't contradict Hebrews 13.8 because that verse isn't saying that Jesus has always been the same in his humanity. We will talk about what it does mean in a few moments. Remember, Jesus was an unborn child. Then he was an infant. Then he was a boy. Then he was a man. He changed. He changed. 
He grew in his understanding of the things of God and in how to wisely apply them. And so the rest of Scripture tells us not to understand this verse as if Jesus the man was unchanging. So the very best commentary on Scripture is Scripture, and that's what we've tried to do. But a second reason why this view is wrong is because it's, it's rooted in an unbiblical understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And, and many real Christians can be fuzzy about these kinds of things. And so I want to take just a moment and, and be very clear about who Jesus Christ actually was, is, and always will be. The Bible teaches that Jesus is both divine and human. He is God and man. Fully and truly God in nature and fully and truly human in nature. And these two natures are united in the person of the Son of God. Now here's the part that we often don't quite get. And these two natures, although joined in the person, never mix. They don't meld. They don't replace each other. These two distinct natures are necessary for our salvation, and they are never uncoupled, and one never overwhelms the other. Liberals have made his humanity overwhelm his deity. And some mistaken conservative folks have often made his divinity just overwhelm his humanity. It, it's like he's not really human. But divinity took humanity to itself. And all the properties of both are preserved forever. So, of course, Jesus as the Son of God doesn't change. Right? Jesus in his divinity absolutely never changes. Because God doesn't change. He is the immutable God. Hebrews 1.12 taught us that Jesus is God and he is, quote, always the same. Without end of years. But Jesus in his human nature must be subject to change. His body and his soul were created by the Holy Spirit. And so he changed, including growing in knowledge and wisdom and bodily stature. Here is where the summaries of previous Christians, such as that found in the Chalcedonian Creed, can so help us. If we understand clearly that Jesus' divinity didn't overwhelm his humanity or displace it, or vice versa, then we would recognize this error that I pointed out earlier. And we would agree with Scripture that Jesus, in his human nature, didn't know everything. You know, like the time he said, I, I don't know, no man knows, and I don't either, when God is the Father's appointed. Obviously, as God, he knew. 
But he wasn't lying. He wasn't being coy. He was speaking the complete truth when he said, I don't know. Or when a crowd of people are touching him and they're just mobbing him and a woman reaches out and touches the very bottom of the little, the little threads on the bottom and, and he turns around and says, who touched me? He felt power go out from him. Who touched me? He wanted to know. He needed to know. He was really human. If Christ was truly human, and he was, just like us, except without sin, then he was subject to change. And this truth should not only not be denied by us, it ought to be very, very precious to us. Because only if he was human like us could he take our place and save us. Right? We learned that back in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Over and over and over again. He wasn't an angel and he didn't die for the angels so that the angels can have salvation. They can't. Fallen angels have no hope. But humanity has hope. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, took on manhood. And he became a real human being. <laughs> and so we can be saved. He can, he can be our substitute. You see, Hebrews 2.14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. His body wasn't a mere show. It wasn't a facade. It wasn't a mask. And his soul was of the nature of humanity. Why else do you think he can sympathize with us? He suffered as a human being. So he can suffer, so he can sympathize with us in our sufferings. God doesn't suffer. God doesn't suffer. But Jesus, the man, suffered in his soul. And so he, as the God-man, can truly sympathize with us. And he can truly die for us. As an early church father, pastor, wrote, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed. In other words, if Jesus didn't take real, true, full humanity to himself then we don't actually have a substitute and every one of us is lost. We're fooling ourselves. Well, that's the first thing that this verse doesn't teach. It doesn't teach that Jesus has always been exactly the same in his humanity. Secondly, a second thing this verse doesn't teach is this. That Jesus existed as the God-man from eternity past. That Jesus existed as the God-man from... Eternity past. Some have actually taken the verse this way, that Jesus was always human, even in eternity before creation. Yeah, see, that, that's how dumb that idea is. It's laughable. It's laughably bad. That's right. You're a better theologian than some of these people I'm going to mention. I'm presently studying the life of a man named Thomas Collier. He was an early particular Baptist, although he wasn't one for long because he became a heretic. I'm doing that 
for uh, a topic I was assigned to preach on at the Reformation Day Conference um, in a few, a few weeks. At one stage of his life, he argued that Jesus Christ had always existed as the God-man. And what he meant, what he went on to explain was that he was eternally divine and eternally human. And that he and the Father lived in an uncreated heaven forever and ever in the past. Now that view has never been widely popular among professing Christians. But this and similar errors pop up from time to time. Some of the Anabaptists called the Hoffmanites, and this is not all of them by any means, but there was a small group who followed a man named Melchior Hoffman, and they believed that when Christ came to the earth, he brought heavenly flesh with him. Now, they did that for a good reason, or they, what they thought was a good reason. They thought that your and my kind of humanity was so stained by sin that it, it couldn't, even by God himself, be corrected for Jesus to actually live in that kind of body. So he had to bring a different kind of body. He had to bring celestial flesh, heavenly flesh, down from there to here and be kind of human. Some general Baptists in England at the end of the 16 and early 1700s held something similar, that Christ brought from heaven a physical body to earth. And so they taught that quite literally, Jesus was unchanging even in his humanity. But again, the rest of scripture does not allow us to interpret Hebrews 13.8 this way. Could it mean that? Well, logically, if we didn't have any other material about Jesus' humanity, I suppose we could infer that. But the rest of Scripture isn't silent about this. It teaches that before creation, there was only God. And this one God was three in person, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And this triune God was uncreated and spiritual. He didn't have a form. He didn't have a body. And then this one God, by his wisdom and power, created everything else that exists. And this includes the body and soul of a man called Jesus of Nazareth, who by the creative power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and united the eternal spiritual Son of God to that humanity at conception. What a miracle. And from that point on, Jesus Christ was an indissolvable, that's not a real word, it's actually indissoluble, but that's really hard to say. He was the indissoluble union of God and man. So yesterday, he was the Christ, and today, and forever. But not forever in reverse. He wasn't. So if we're speaking biblically and very carefully, we would say that the Son of God has always existed. He is fully God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is necessarily eternal. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, the union of divinity and humanity, he has not always existed. He came into being about 2,000 years ago. 
by the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. So he existed yesterday. He didn't exist as a human in a body eternally. And he lives today and forever. This verse isn't focused, this verse in in chapter 13, isn't focused like the early chapters of Hebrews are on demonstrating that the Son of God was the unchanging and eternal God. That's already been proved. No, he is now being looked on, not as God alone, but as the God-man. He's not, notice, it doesn't say, Son of God, yesterday, today, and forever. It's Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. He is called Jesus the Christ. Christ is, of course, the Greek translation for Hebrew Messiah. It means anointed one. So this verse is declaring not that Jesus, what, not what Jesus is as God alone, but what he is as God and man, as Jesus the Christ, as the, the anointed God-man, the church's prophet, priest, and king and thus their Savior. And he did not exist in that form eternally. All right. So that's the second thing this verse doesn't teach. Now what does this verse teach about an unchanging Christ? Well, the first thing it teaches is that the ultimate church leader will never die. The ultimate church leader will never die. Oh, what a comfort this has been in my heart last week. Those addressed in this book had lost their first generation of pastors. Those men were worthy of imitation in the faith and in life, but they were gone and couldn't lead the church any longer. Yes, new ones had replaced them, verse 17. But really, how safe is the church if its leaders are constantly changing? That may be what part of what the Hebrews are thinking here. And verse 8 contains the truth that should sustain all of us through the comings and goings of merely human leaders. Jesus Christ, the ultimate leader of the church, will not die or leave or be removed. He is the same forever. He has a purpose to build his church and that is unchanging. He has power to build it. And that is unchanging. He has a promise to protect it, even against the gates of hell. And that is unchanging as well. So do you worry about who will pastor you next? Well, at the human level, we should work and pray about this. But at the ultimate level, the answer is Christ is our continuing chief and good and great shepherd. And he will always pastor you. In this sense, he is the same. Yesterday, he cared for you as his sheep. Today, he is caring for you. And he will do this not just for part, of for part of tomorrow, but forever. Or as my wife refers, and as it is literally, for the ages.
Christ is your pastor for the ages. Through all of our life on earth and into the new heavens and new earth, Jesus Christ will pastor his people. So brothers and sisters, let's not fret about the future. Let's trust in the unchanging shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ. Now the second and more general truth taught in this verse is this. The object of our faith and the source of full salvation is unchanging. And that's the real meat of this verse. That's what this verse plainly and strongly means. The object of our faith, Jesus Christ, and the source of full salvation, Jesus the Christ, He is unchanging. That is what the rest of the Bible tells us an unchanging Christ means. As I pointed out earlier, Jesus Christ are the first words in this verse. This name, Jesus, means salvation. And the title Christ or Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed as they came into office. And all of that points us to Christ's complete work of saving his people from their sins. He is a prophet because his elect ones are ignorant of the way of salvation without him. He is their permanent teacher. Because these one these loved ones are separated from God by their sins, his people need someone to make atonement for them. And so Jesus is their forever priest and intercessor. And because they have spiritual enemies, they need a king to protect them. Jesus continues the same as the Prince of Peace. He was so in the past. He is now. And ever will be. In none of these offices, in none of this work, in no part of his name, anointed for salvation, Jesus Christ, will he fail. He's not going to quit. He's not even going to falter or stumble. He is the same perfect, complete Savior. The object of our faith and the source of our full salvation is unchanging. And that means, my friend, that if you are in Christ, if you have believed on him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you are a Christian, you are absolutely secure. Nothing can come between you and the perfection of the unchanging Christ. And this should bring us great comfort in all kinds of spiritual struggles. Let me just give you a few examples. And these are ways now that you can take this general verse or principle and apply it in, in other ways in your thinking and, and in your life. So the general truth is that Jesus Christ has been and always remains the answer to men's spiritual problems. 
So here are three truths that inevitably follow. First, no one has ever been saved except through Jesus Christ. Even when the Old Testament believers didn't know his human name, even before he lived as a man, they looked to him for their salvation. Second, this means that the Christian message of salvation in his name doesn't change. It will never be superseded. We will never outgrow it. Men's fundamental natures don't so change that Christ is no longer the answer. That's the stupidity, frankly, of modernity. Well, we're modern now. We're advanced. <laughs> we're well beyond that. Uh, no, if that's what you think, you're actually still back in the dregs of darkness. You've not advanced. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, thirdly, since his work is perfect and continuing, no later prophets or priests or kings could replace him. So when Islam claims Muhammad as a later and greater prophet, we say, nope. <laughs> Jesus Christ continues the same. And when others promote alternative priests or kings, we deny them and say, nope, Jesus Christ continues the same. Jesus was all sufficient and is so today and will remain forever for the ages. Well, let me give you four quick uses and we'll be done. First, let us make verse 8 our confession, or at least part of it. Let us make verse 8 our confession. This striking short truth about Jesus Christ has the ring of a creed or a confession about it. It's summarized truth about one aspect of Jesus' work. So let's understand it the way the Bible means it. Let's memorize it. Let's confess it. There is spiritual safety in knowing how to rightly think about Jesus, his person and work, his deity, his humanity, his unchanging nature and his changeable nature. So let us study to grasp all God has for us in these few but deeply meaningful words. A second use. Let us beware of doctrinal distortions, especially to truths about Christ. We need to commit ourselves to letting the Bible interpret the Bible. It will keep us in bounds so that we don't wander from the truth if the Spirit so works. For if we place our trust in a false Christ or a non-existent Christ, what hope is there for our salvation? Will such a faith save us? No. Three, let us freely apply this truth. Whatever the spiritual need of a believer, the solution is found in Jesus Christ. Really. <laughs> really. Whatever the spiritual need of any believer, whether born yesterday, living today, or still in the future, <laughs> the solution is the unchanging Christ. It will always be the unchanging Christ. His salvation is complete. 
His love is unchanging. His promises are all yes and amen in him. So whenever our hearts are troubled for any manner, let us turn to the unchanging Savior. He ever lives to make intercession for you, dear saint. He pled for you in the past, and God heard him. He is pleading for you now, and God hears him. He will plead for you throughout the ages. And so you are safe, for God will hear him. We will know his mediatorial grace forever and ever. So brothers and sisters, let's wear out this verse. (laughs) Because it teaches with certainty that no troubles will ever find us. But where Christ will be our helper. Well, fourth and finally, we are secure if we're united to this Christ. We are secure. We are utterly safe if we are united to this Christ. He is the same forever. So we cannot lose our salvation. Our sins and our troubles won't one day become so heavy. Oh, he couldn't have imagined this. And it, it, it's just overwhelmed him. And so uh, it's too much for him to bear. No, 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 no. That will never happen. He will ever be the same strong, sufficient, perfect mediator. And so all who trust in him will never be put to shame, as the promise is. Now, some of you may be sitting here and you're saying, well, that sounds important. (laughs) Um, How do I get united to this Christ? How do I join him? How do I become one of his? Well, the command and the promise, they're very plain. They're so simple, you might think they're trite and not worth doing. But it is this. This is the word of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what saving faith is in the Bible. It's a right knowledge of the Christ that you, you agree with and that you then put your trust in. You say, I have no hope in myself for my sins. God is righteously angry with me because of them. I have no way of escape unless it's with Christ. And I'm, I'm 100% in with Christ. You're not hedging your bets. Well, I, I do this religion the first Sunday of the month. I do this religion on the second Friday of the month. I do this. I try that psychological thing. No, no, no. Believe and trust. And you will be saved from your sins of yesterday, today, and those future sins you haven't even committed yet. Because Christ, yesterday and today, the same. And for the ages. Oh, believe on him. Believe on him. And find safety. Let's pray.